Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are going down to Texas. And I'm thrilled to bring on Dr. Ken Maverick of Maverick Distilling. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We're a little chilly down here right now, uh, but en- enjoying a uh, little wintry weather. Yeah, that's. we were chatting a little bit before starting recording. And uh, as of today, as of the day we're recording, it's actually chillier down in San Antonio than it is here in New York City, which is ridiculous. But hey, what are we going to do about it? Well... They say around around here, winter is is cold here. If you're the day it ha- if you're here the day it happens, and it happens to be today. <laughs> You've also had more snow than we've had, apparently. So even with flurries, yeah, so, um, absolutely insane. So, uh, yeah. So with Maverick Stilling, Maverick Whiskey, we're going to uh, talk through not only the kind of incredible history that you guys have as a family in San Antonio, but also the nature of your whiskeys and spirits. Because you've got a, a gin now and a rye, and just this idea of Texas whiskey and where Maverick fits or does not fit in there. So, why don't we uh, kick off as we always do with the the Maverick whiskey story? So it's kind of a nexus of a few things that came together um, a, a few years back. I was really, uh, trying to record some of our family history. And, uh, my, my grandmother had given me this box of, uh, you know, kind of old letters that I, I toted around with me for years. And finally one summer, uh, my wife and, and kids were visiting the in-laws and I decided I wanted to, um, scan them and get them digitally, you know, kind of, uh, saved, you know, for posterity and started going through these. And, there's this Trevor, treasure trove of history. Um, a lot of it was letters going back and forth between husband and wife and siblings. And, you know, it kind of created this patchwork of, of live history, you know, going way back to the 1800s. And then um, a, another kind of layer of that, I, I went to the archives in, in Austin and San Antonio and started digging through, you know, kind of old family papers. And, um, you know, the, the lives they lived back then were just so incredibly hard. Um, you know, there was always a, a theme of survival and there was always a theme of, uh, you know, either, either whiskey or brandy or wine kind of along the way. Um, at the same time, a, a buddy of mine had gotten back from Afghanistan and was talking about how they were doing some distillations, maybe in some of the other parts of the encampment. And, you know, it was kind of showing him, you know, some of these old papers and he said, hey, we should try to you know, do some of this old cowboy whiskey. And so uh, literally started on my on my back, my back porch. Um, I can I can actually probably zoom around and show you where, where it is. You can't see that on the podcast. But um, yeah, there's there's an awning back there. That is basically where uh, kind of our first iterations of some whiskeys began. And we started, we put it in a barrel and left it a couple of years and started kind of passing it around uh friends and you know at some point they said gosh you should you should do this and at the same time my wife may have a slightly different version of the story but uh the we had i had some uh in our we have a basement kind of a root cellar in the in the bottom uh, of our house and um, i had some uh storage tanks there and was doing a, a you know kind of a mash and a fermentation and uh, I hadn't quite vented one uh, probably quite as well as it, it needed to be. And one night we hear this, you know, kind of pop and hissing uh, that woke us up out of sleep and we didn't know what it was, but she went down to the basement the next day and our, our whole basement was just covered in corn mash. And she said, she said, I love you, but can you do this somewhere else? <laughs> and so uh, at, the, at the same time, this old building downtown had gone, uh, for sale. And it, it just happened to be on our original family homestead across from the Alamo. And it, it was a hundred year old bank building uh, where, where next to where the original uh, Maverick family homestead house was and, and on the homestead proper. 
And so um, we decided to buy it and took about two years to restore it. We crammed a distillery inside it uh, and you know, convinced the city of San Antonio and about every other federal state agency that we can do this distillation downtown. Um, meanwhile, I'd visited some distilleries in Chicago and Philadelphia, kind of downtown distilleries and um, had our fire marshal, you know, kind of reach out to try to help understand that, you know, these big shiny vessels are not, you know, bombs that are going to blow up. And uh, we created a, a very modern, um, you know, distillery in this old kind of bank building. Uh, and, you know, to, to date or have about five-year-old bourbon and have done a lot of, a lot of other interesting spirits along the way. And, uh, you know, we're definitely going to go more into that, that history of uh, just the Maverick family, but your day job is, are you still um, working day job as an ophthalmologist? I'm a, I'm a ophthalmologist, eye surgeon. Yeah. I've, I've got 20 surgeries tomorrow morning. We've kind of kept, kept the, um, the day job going and I love it. I mean, I, there was never the intention to kind of, kind of give it up. Uh, and the, the business is a family business. We, we have gotten our kids involved and they help with the restoration of the building um, my wife, you know, now runs a lot of it as well. She's also a physician. We're just running from, from down at the distillery. Uh, we, we finish our day job and usually kind of check and make sure things are going on there, you know, going like they're supposed to. And, um, our daughter helps handle the social media. You know, I have another son who helps handle, uh, you know, grounds around the barrel house and, and that sort of thing. So we're trying to, you know, impart on them you know, that, you know, kind of like our ancestors that inspired to, to, to make something out of nothing. And, and, you know, this has kind of been a, a family experiment, you know, to that extent as well. And, you know, it's been hard and there've been bumps and setbacks and, you know, it, it's a, you know, hopefully a testament of, of, you know, survival and, and pushing through, you know, hard times. COVID was a big challenge for us. Um, you know, we turned our distillery into making hand sanitizer like a lot of other places and, and you know, gave it to city officials. And, um, you know, I'm in the healthcare field, so it, it hit very close where we just needed hand sanitizer. And, and so, you know, that was not in the job description or the business plan for sure. But, uh, you know, we've, we've tried to meet every challenge. And I love the idea of uh, the you know, getting the building on the homestead, but also clearly the family business, having people, you know, your daughter handling the social media, the son handling the grounds, your wife handling so many of the things around the distillery. It's, uh, you don't see that very often. <laughs> to be pretty honest, it's usually like, I don't know, become someone's job and then it's their whole life and they kind of want to separate everything else from it. But it seems like it's a nice balance here and I, I like hearing about it. And to that end, as you said, a couple of years ago, you got to digitize the memoirs of, let's see, this would be your great, great, great grandmother, uh, Mary Maverick. Correct. Three greats to Sam and Mary, right. who, who were the first um, kind of settlers to come to Texas and settle in San Antonio. And, you know, his his story was um, he was from, uh, you know, very nice, you know, kind of family situation in, in uh, Charleston and Pendleton, South Carolina. Uh, he was very agrarian. His interests were really uh, viticulture and, um, you know, a lot of the, the, you know, local farming going on. And um, that's kind of where some of the history of the distillation and uh, both with brandy and, and wines, he, he actually brought the first um, grape wine, grape vines to Texas, now, um, you know, which is just a total side story. But um, he um, ran into a situation where uh, way back then, uh, if someone insults your father, uh, you challenge him to a duel. And so um, he challenged this guy to a duel who was uh, ma making disparaging marks about his father and um, won the duel, shot the guy. Uh, but he was not, you know, uh, you know, someone who's violent or, 
really a revolutionary. He, he brought the, the gentleman to his house and nursed him back to health. And I tell my kids this, uh, always be nice to everybody, because even if you shoot them, you never know later in life when that may come back around. And so uh, the man's name was John C. Calhoun, who was the son of another prominent politician in South Carolina. Um, and, and they were kind of involved in the, you know, secession versus non-secession. Uh, and so what happens when you shoot the senator's son um, is you got to leave town. And so Sam Maverick uh, went to Texas. And so um, he, he'd had a Yale law education and then uh, really wanted to kind of seek his own, you know, fortune uh, initially by surveying around San Antonio. And, and he built up this um, kind of collection of maps that when the Texas Revolution started, um, he was not a revolutionary, but he had really good maps of the city. And when some of the other um, Texians who were trying to retake the city ne needed uh, navigation, they made him their guide because he knew the city streets and, and kind of where the houses and hideouts were. And so there was a, a gentleman named uh, Milam, Ben Milam, who were of, of the Milam and Green uh, lineage, who um, was a colonel who, who tapped Sam Maverick to help him retake the city. And they did, but Ben Milam um, took a bullet, um, in a musket ball in his head, standing right next to Sam Maverick and fell into his arms and died. And so, you know, if you go back far enough, you know, there, there are these connections that are, you know, just really kind of intimate, um, you know, even between, you know, two, two whiskey distilleries now, Milam and, and Maverick. And so, um, so Maverick ended up staying in San Antonio and became uh, indoctrinated into kind of the, the revolutionary force that was defending the Alamo. But he left, um, he was sent and elected to go sign the Texas Declaration of Independence um, two days before the massacre. Um, so he, he always, he got to live basically, and he always harbored this survivor's guilt that he, um, you know, his 187 year old, 187, you know, buddies sent him to go get help. And, and, you know, the help was too late. So he um, made his home next to the Alamo and that's where the homestead is. Uh, and that's how that, that piece of property got to be there because he always vowed to, um, you know, honor their memory. And, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do now is to keep some of these stories and memories uh, alive, you know, alongside our, our spirits. And I mean, I was, I had some time to look through the, not the whole thing, but just some of the memoirs of Mary Maverick linked right from the Maverick Sling website and the picture of paints is, is just one of not only the life that was lived, but it's, it's very, it's visceral. I think which is the most important thing. It, it really gives you a sense of it. And the way that the history is intertwined through the larger things, I mean, shot in a duel. So I guess you could argue legally shot John C. Calhoun. Um, as you said, he nursed him back to health, but given Texas's kind of status at that time, he literally had to leave the country to. Uh, right. You know. And, and uh, I mean, a lot of Americans were going to um, Texas at the time, which was precisely the problem that um, Santa Ana, <laughs> excuse me, was was trying to really quell because they they there was what was called the um, Mexican Constitution of 1824, which is pretty revolutionary. It gave women the right to vote and own land. It freed slaves. It was a, a real democracy, but. Um, it also gave Americans, um, you know, kind of privilege from taxes and, and also they had land ownership in this, you know, territory, essentially. And so many were coming that the, you know, the Mexican government you know, was feeling threatened by that. And so um, really the, and the flag that flew above the Alamo was a Mexican flag with 1824 on it. Um, they, they weren't necessarily, you know, claiming that they wanted to be, you know, uh, you know, separate from Mexico, but they wanted the Mexican government to honor at least those laws that Santa Ana was not. And, you know, that's that's our version of history. We had a, a contingent of uh, 
Mexican generals in, in the building not too long ago. And we're telling the story and one of them leaned over to me and he said, you know, that's not exactly how we see it. <laughs> so, but you know, what was neat is there were, you know, Mexican and, and uh, American generals re really having a summit in San Antonio and planning, you know, security type things uh, that, you know, we're sitting around having a whiskey together. And, you know, I, I look at that table and I was like, you know, this is exactly why, you know, we did this is, you know, to try to bring people together and, you know, remember history and respect history. And, um, you know, it's, it's been, you know, layers and layers of it. You mentioned Mary Maverick. I mean, Sam's legacy is, is remarkable, but if you read her diaries, I mean, she was really even more remarkable because while he was off, um, you know, kind of pioneering and exploring, she was home with, you know, the 10 kids fighting off Indians and trying to get the kids fed and, you know, going to the river, getting water and, you know, hope, hoping her two-year-old wouldn't get into a rattlesnake, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, life was really hard, especially on women back then. And so, you know, part of our, uh, you know, journey and that with my wife is, uh, you know, this, you know, trying to make something out of nothing, nothing and, 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 and family too. I mean, that's really, really a theme. And you've kind of got a rare situation too, in that you have, not only a long family history, but a long family history in one place of, you know, seven, eight generations right. now. And as far as the whiskey world goes, the, the list of names that have that in earnest are, are pretty slim. I mean, arguably the Beams, um, mm -hmm. Kentucky, uh, Eric Wolf in Pennsylvania with Stolen Wolf, but um, mm -hmm. really not not many that are that are continuous histories and neither in the same place so it presents a really unique situation for you in which you can kind of uh, exploit's not the right word that i want to use but like exploit that history for for good if you will yeah no yeah. i mean we're we're trying to tell you know a lot of these stories and you know it's it's interesting reading a lot of these this goes back to this box my grandmother gave me uh, you know a lot of these firsthand you know letters and notations um you know, aren't exactly maybe what was in textbooks or, you know, maybe the story changed along the way. And, and, you know, everybody has their own version of history, I guess. And, and, you know, we respect that, but, you know, we also kind of look back at some of the events and, and, you know, can say, you know, that, maybe that wasn't exactly how it happened because, you know, a firsthand observer <laughs> said it was this way. So <laughs> there've been, you know, some interesting events just in San Antonio history and along the way. And, this was multiple generations. I mean, it really started with Mary and part of her story is remarkable because she was literate and, and she literally just wrote down everything she saw. And um, much of San Antonio's early history is based on her diaries because um, you know, a, a lot of it disappeared when the Mexican army, you know, went through and then was restarted when they resettled San Antonio. And so um, she was the first Anglo woman in San Antonio and the first Anglo woman really to have a family and, and, you know, was, was bilingual and, you know, integrated well. And, you know, we, we could learn a lot of lessons, but by the way, you know, they, they carried themselves behind our building. Uh, there's a park called Travis park and it's actually, um, the second oldest public space in America it was founded, uh, shortly after the Boston common. And uh, Sam Maverick donated the park to the city. You know, he was essentially a land developer and he bought land and parceled it up and was trying to uh, develop this area. And so, um, and this was in the 18, late 1830s, 1840s, uh, where he donated a parcel on every corner of the park to a different denomination church. And um, there was an Episcopal church, there was a temple um, there was a, a Methodist church and a Baptist church. And at some point there was a little Catholic chapel, you know, all along this park called Travis Park, which he named in honor of uh, his, his friend Travis, who died in the in the Alamo. And so, you know, that's where we're really the, the center of the city and kind of the cultural center of the city, you know, started. And, um, you know, it's right in the middle of downtown San Antonio. And so it's kind of, you know, stories like that, that we can look back and you know, pretty revolutionary for the 1800s just to say, hey, we, we need to be, you know, diverse and, you know, kind of integrated and all get along. So 
um, you know, that's just kind of one of the stories that goes along with the whiskey. Absolutely. And, you know, one more purely history question before, before getting into the whiskey itself. Uh, I wanted to ask, because this came up on, on the Maverick Distilling website, and it was just struck me that, number one, I mean, it circles back to, again, Civil War, because of the John C. Calhoun affair. Mm -hmm. And then later on, after Mexican, uh, sorry, Texas Independence, Union, that uh, Sam Maverick supported Sam Houston in his rally to support the Union during the American Civil War, but he voted for for, uh, secession as a member of the convention. Right. And I was curious if you found any kind of explanation for that duality. So, so one of the, one of the kind of deepest and, you know, kind of more interesting parts um, of both he and Mary writing letters to each other uh, was this kind of situation. And, and that's, you know, the, the Calhoun uh, duel was basically over. They were, Maverick was pro union, but living in the South. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, there, there are lots of complexities to that, but um, that really transferred over to Texas where, you know, they, they were very, you know, pro, um, you know, keeping the states together, you know, but at the same time, this is where they lived and they had multiple sons in the Confederate army um, at the same time, because they were, you know, at base kind of felt like they're defending their land. And, um, and so, you know, they, in his mind, and I mean, I would love to delve deeper into this. He never reconciled it. I mean, when he felt even to, you know, I think the day he died, that um, he he would you know was didn't want to turn his back on his brethren who he lived, but his heart was not there, you know, and his mind was not there, and so um, you know an incredibly complex situation where you know he, he I think he was in his mind he was trying to keep the peace and you know make make the best decision for you know probably his family, um, but when you know one of the more remarkable things is when the confederacy was um surrendered in san antonio he was tapped as as the representative and not one drop of blood was shed um you know when when that happened and that was pretty rare around the country at that time and then you know going back to the annexation of texas you know just prior to that um his relationship with calhoun was really what kind of grease the wheels if you will because um, they had a, a history together and they had a trust and he was secretary of state under uh, i believe james k polk then and um the annexation of texas was was a slippery slope because they didn't want to start a war with mexico um but um you know they they you know kind of navigated this political maelstrom and you know without you know, but I mean, very gracefully, I guess. And and that's, uh, you know, that's a neat part of the story. And, you know, I wish we had, you know, some more details of, you know, that, but, you know, we, we really just know kind of from his firsthand diaries and, you know, sometimes there was just a, a one liner or, you know, a paragraph that day that, you know, probably had some huge historical significance, but then he started talking about his, his, uh, you know, grapevines, because, you know, that's where his heart was <laughs> so, in, in everyday life. Is that he was an agrarian rather than more than anything else? It, it really was, you know, I mean, I think that's how he viewed himself. So with that, I think it's a perfect segue into the, the whiskey and, and the spirits. So in addition to bringing the grapevines to Texas and having his own whiskey recipe, I did want to mention first that he was also known for his brandies uh particularly from peaches and figs i believe they were correct um do you know was that kind of like before the whiskey or was he kind of into whiskey at the same time um it 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 was alongside um you know even going back to the south carolina history um the the brandy and the fruit was readily available and um you know moving west um you know, it didn't transport so well. And what did transport well west was grain. Uh, but grain was, you know, heavy. And um, the best way to transport it was in a liquid form in a barrel. And so initially, um, in his 
you know, a lot of this came from a tradition where he would, um, you know, buy or acquire a parcel of land. And back then there were, there was the, the Chihuahuan Mexican government, there was the Mexican federal government, there was the San Antonio kind of local government, and then there was the U.S. government. And it wasn't always very clear, you know, where the deed sat or, or where the law fell, you know, for, you know, 30 years of, of this, or, you know, really till the, you know, probably past the Civil War, because the, the Confederate government was part of it as well. And so many of these dealings were, you had to trust the guy. Mm-hmm. And um, because there were two deeds, and one said one thing, and one said the other. And so it, it really was a handshake, and, and you know, a, a, a barrel of whiskey. And so that that was, you know, one of the kind of lines, and, and even uh, Mary uh, in her diaries um, talked about this, where you know, he was as good as his, his word and, and that's how he was effective, I think. And, you know, it's that real authenticity that we've we've tried to make, uh, you know, prevalent in both our our business, but then and also in our our spirits. Um, but, the, you know, back to the whiskey, he he would initially um, import the whiskey, um, you know, even down from Bourbon, Kentucky. It spent a year going down the Mississippi and then would go through the port of New Orleans, um, usually across the Gulf again, and then back, um, you know, through Houston or, or um, in one of the ports uh, or Galveston in that area. And it took about two years to get to San Antonio, you know, sloshing around in this barrel. By that time, it was pretty good. Um, and so um, there was an Indian raid um, that basically... Um, the, the Indian raid decimated a year's worth of supplies. And, and, you know, one of the supplies was their supply of whiskey. And, you know, that's, that's where we started. Um, we started seeing that the, the brandy and some of the whiskeys, they were, you know, you couldn't just go to, you know, the local liquor store and order them up. And so they started, uh, you know, San Antonio started being more settled and being able to, you know, have, have some of those provisions to do that. But um, he did, have some local farms and, and a, a vineyard. The Travis Park was where they grew the peaches for his brandy. Um, and then, you know, the, the grapes were, you know, part of that along the way too, where they, they talked about um, wine. So it was a, you know, really multiple, um, you know, ty- types of spirits and, and uh, you know, they, they did along the way, just as part of the, the cultural experience of, of living there. It never went bad. Uh, and he said this, it never went bad. Um, it only got more valuable with time and the locals loved it. And I think the locals, he was referring to the Indian population. <laughs> Absolutely. So the part of the legacy in the history is um, you have some old recipes of the whiskey that have come through your family. Now I'm not totally clear on this, so you can you know feel free to clear this up, but um, I don't think they came all the way from great great grandfather great 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 grandfather sam maverick but still about a century ago something like that is that correct right so yeah yeah so i mean we've kind of pieced together um you know the the history going back and i mean i did a lot of research on kind of what whiskey was you know in 1840 1860 and it obviously it uh, add all sorts of stuff, molasses, um, gunpowder, turpentine um, to color it. And, um, and then obviously proof it down where, you know, the word proof comes from uh, to, um, you know, m- make it a different kind of proof, usually lower proof. And so, um, you know, we kind of triangulated and this is with, you know, a buddy who came back from Afghanistan, you know, what, what that would look like in, you know, 1840, 1860. Um, and then, you know, in, in some of the, the great grandchildren and that sort of thing, we, we did start seeing some, uh, you know, mentions and, you know, how they were doing this and, in, in, you know, grandpa's mash bill and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, that, you know, there, there are bits and pieces um that we put together along the way. And, um, you know, obviously we can't put molasses in our modern day uh, TTB approved whiskey or gunpowder, but, uh, you know, we've stuck to, you know, what 
the, the ingredients they would have at the time. Um, we stick to all Texas grown corn. Um, we get all our uh, winter rye from the panhandle, uh, barley from the panhandle. Um, our, our corn is grown um, locally, um, you know, right, right down I-90, which is uh, right outside of San Antonio. And it has a little different, you know, call it kind of terroir. Um, South Texas corn is a little more sweet than, you know, probably uh, Midwestern corn, Indiana type corn. And so um, our, our bourbon tends to be a little sweeter and, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's our Texas whiskey and it's not exactly a Kentucky or, or Tennessee whiskey, but that's, that's the whole point is it's, it's a little different. It is. And, you know, I have, I've had the pleasure of trying the Samuel Maverick private reserve, uh, Texas straight bourbon whiskey. Uh, and I first got this actually back in, uh, was a September and um, been nursing it kind of ever since. And it does have a particular flavor to it. Like it's, it's different. It's not, I don't think there's quite a Texas flavor profile, if you will, at this point. Right. Um, and it's speaking statewide, but in a, uh, you know, in a previous event that I think met you for the first time at, one of the things that um, you and Kevin, um, Kevin Graham, you uh, still are right. mentioned was that you're not really trying to be a Texas whiskey. It's, it's more just the fact that it's a whiskey or a bourbon or rye from Texas, as opposed to um, some other brands that are kind of taking it a little more directly. Like, yes, this is a Texas whiskey. This is a, right. a Texas bourbon. And um, you know, what is that uh, separation kind of meant for you as you've developed the brand? Um, I mean, our, our kind of mission is to kind of stay as local and kind of true to that, you know, the process I just mentioned as, as possible. And so um, we have been able to source, you know, everything from Texas. We tried um, to even age in some Texas live oak, mm -hmm. but our, because of our, our seasons, our, our oak is much drier. Um, it basically tastes like turpentine. So mm -hmm. th there's a reason why good American white oak comes from the Midwest or Minnesota and, you know, some things you can't reinvent and, and there's just a reason why that's the best in class. But, you know, as far as the, um, you know, kind of who we are, um, I mean, we haven't tried to be anybody else, but, you know, kind of Maverick whiskey. And, you know, part of the mission was to, you know, get, get, get stay as local and try to stay uh, to Texas um, products. And um, fortunately it's a big place and that may, um, you know, may go to what you said where there are some different profiles. Northern Texas corn is different than South Texas corn, uh, you know, cause there's 1200 miles in between as well. And so, I mean, we've really just tried to be us and, you know, haven't really tried to, uh, you know, imitate or, or mimic, you know, obviously there's some processes that, you know, we go to other distilleries and, you know, have, you know, great respect and we all have something to learn from each other, but, um, you know, we didn't really put too much, you know, thought or engineering, even though like our barrel storage, it's just, you know, we're going to store it here and it's going to, have our own local taste. And, you know, if you store it in our bank vault, there's really nobody else in the world who can mimic that environment. Uh, we've since built a couple of um, barrel houses um, in, in South Bear County, which is, um, you know, we just needed more room. Uh, and, and those are surrounded by cactus fields and uh, red dirt. And, and, you know, we, we've caught, I mean, I call it, you know, whiskey heaven where, I feel like our, our barrels are happy there and, and that's where we get a unique, you know, a unique flavor. I mean, there are two things that, first so I don't, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, you know, I guess to, you know, long, long way to say like, I, I don't know exactly what a Texas whiskey is or what that profile is, but um, you know, I, I, I know we're, I, I know we're one of them, I, I guess, just cause we're not uh, you know, we're, we're really trying to kind of keep a, you know, a, a tight circle on, you know, our, our sourcing and ingredients and really make it unique to this region. All right. And uh, so got to go into the maturation a little bit, but uh, before we do, 
on the question of oak. So where do you get your barrels from? Um, I mean, most of it is from uh, Missouri or Minnesota. I mean, we, we source from a couple of different barrel houses, kind of depending on, but um, I mean, they're, you know, heart, heart of Midwest, you know, tight grain, um, white oak. Um, you know, we do a, a number three uh, for most of our, um, you know, most of our whiskeys. And so uh, that's um, that, you know, that the live oak, Texas barrels just taste more like turpentine. So uh, the the Midwestern oak is definitely uh, the way to go. I hear you. It's that a write up on the difference between tight grain and uh, like a fine grain or open grain, and what that means for the whiskey. So uh, it kind of fits. And and you're working uh, thirty gallon barrels. So we have a mix of both. Initially, we did all 30s as we were getting going, but we're starting to put in the 53s now. And so um, we've been laying down, you know, I guess five years now. And so we're starting to get a, you know, a nice little library of barrels. Um, we did some uh, just pure weed along the way. Um, we may talk about we've done a triticale whiskey uh, that's, that's unique. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably get into a little blending of our own stuff you know, before long, but, um, you know, we're really just trying to get our, you know, kind of our core products, um, you know, really starting to be out there. I mean, we're really just starting to have, um, like the private reserve, something that, you know, we feel like, you know, we, we want to share with the world. Sure. Absolutely. So definitely want to be trying and keeping an eye out for the triticale and the wheat whiskeys because yes. alternative grains. Um, so into the, you know, skipping ahead to the maturation process, this private reserve uh, was notable because it came from seven barrels from the bank vault. Correct. So um, before we get to the barrel houses that are uh, out out by the cacti, uh, let's talk about, mm -hmm. you know, the, the bank vault and why, I guess, the why of of why you put the barrels in there kind of makes sense. It's if nothing else, it's certainly unique, but uh, you know, the, the why behind it, but also just more about like, what does that do for it? And um, has it have you second guessed it at all? No, I mean, it's, it's a unique microclimate first of all. And so, you know, we were a hundred percent sure. I mean, we, we, you know, I did bring kind of engineers in and we tried to, you know, see what the, you know, kind of the cycles were. Um, you know, as far as what the temperature does, it's, it's subterranean essentially. And so um, it generally stays um, cooler, but, um, you know, probably unique to San Antonio. Um, we're probably the only building downtown that has a ventilation system <laughs> that brings outside air into the basement. And so um, we, we pump it in um, and, and that basically mimics the, the outdoor ambient temperature. Um, and so when it's a hundred degrees outside in San Antonio, our bank vault is about 95. And so, um, we do get, um, a, a day and night gradient, um, you know, of sometimes about 20 degrees. And then, um, you know, around, you know, this, the cycle of, you know, summer, fall, winter, um, there's, you know, there's another cycle of kind of cool and warm, um, you know, the humidity is, um, relatively high, uh, down there. Um, and you know, the real reason we used it is because that's the space we had available. <laughs> and so, but, but we knew it was, you know, I, I knew it was going to be kind of a unique, um, you know, a new unique process there. And it, it does seem, you know, our, you know, along the way, our, when, when we had, we had a one-year-old whiskey, it was more reminiscent of a two-year-old. And when we had a two-year-old, it was more reminiscent of a four-year-old. And so, you know, we, we seem to be getting, um, you know, good, um, turnover and good, um, you know, kind of infusion in, in and out of the wood, which is, you know, the whole game. We looked at some, you know, kind of ideas of pressurizing it. Um, but the engineer basically said, if we create like a negative pressure, uh, the building would basically collapse into the basement. <laughs> so, you know, we, we had some, you know, kind of harebrained ideas, but at the end of the day, we're, we're just letting really the ambient air uh, do, do the job and it's done a, done a pretty good job. The newest line from Impex Beverages has arrived. Hakata whiskey is distilled and matured in Fukuoka, Japan by the Hikari Distillery 
using 100% barley with a touch of koji fermentation to add savory umami to the pours. Four expressions are currently available, the 10-year, 12-year, 16-year, and 18-year. All are fully matured in first fill and refill Oloroso and PX sherry casks, then bottled at 42% ABV. Each release speaks to a different palate, and each is truly unique. If you love sherry dominance, go for the 10-year. The 12-year adds reminders of red wine sangria and a stone fruit salad. The 16-year lessens the sherry influence a bit to open juicy fruit and bubble tape gum, jelly donuts, taking your thought to the boldest of the bold Australian Cabernet Sauvignons, and offering a demi-glass-like mouthfeel. Finally, the 18-year-old returns to those sherry roots, bolstered by the Australian red sensations from the 16-year and inky black Tempranillo wine feelings, imparting black cherry, golden raisins, and dark honey in Lady Grey tea. Each of these expressions brings a different dimension to the sherry, and there is truly one for every palate. Go to impexbev.com slash hakata, that's H-A-K-A-T-A, to find out more, and grab a bottle at your favorite premium whiskey shop today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Mall Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. And so what is, what is a, uh, an early 20th century bank vault look like in terms of, because, uh, you know, we think, of a, we think of a Rick House, we think of, you know, pretty thin walls, wood, airflow, some sun. Yeah. Uh, vault, not so much. So, so, so the vault um, was made, um, the Lockwood Bank was built and or finished in 1918. And it was billed as the first burglar proof bank west of the Mississippi. Okay. And San, San Antonio was the largest city west of the Mississippi at that time. Um, and so um, it's got one and two foot thick walls. <laughs> so um, when we were redoing it, I mean, the contractors, you know, we were trying to, you know, sink like a, a rod in the floor to be like a ground wire, you know, for the building. Mm. And I mean, they went through bits and bits and bits and they couldn't drill through it. I mean, it's two or three feet thick. And you know, this is the, the concrete that was made a hundred years ago. And it like, it's, it's, it's a little better quality than, you know, the concrete now. Um, I mean, it's as hard as steel. And so, um, you know, it doesn't, the, the concrete doesn't breathe, but um, the, there are parts of the vault that are, um, you know, that were not, that are open now that aren't, that weren't part of, you know, the, the storage of money that um, kind of breathed with the limestone around it. Before it was a, a bank, it was a firehouse. Sam Maverick had donated the city uh, to, for that land to be a firehouse because when you're a landowner in downtown and in the 1800s and, and the city's full of wooden buildings, you know, where do you want the firehouse? You want it in your backyard. And so um, there was a cistern um, that's now part of that, you know, kind of excavation that was in the area. Um, and the walls are different there. It's more like limestone. And so, um, you know, it, it breathes, I guess, is the point. And, you know, that's where some of the humidity, you know, comes in and out of. But um, it's not it's not dank. Um, you know, the air is fresh. I mean, it smells like whiskey now, which is the beautiful thing. I mean, you walk down there and uh you know that's that's how i think heaven smells uh sure so, so <laughs> yeah, it it's a it's a unique you know it's fun fun for people giving tours and you know the the answer is we didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out but um you know we you know we've monitored it and, and kind of learned from it and um you know the those seven barrels we picked were just the you know the best we found uh you know of, of what's down there now and we're starting to you know, restack and rotate, you know, from what we're doing now, because, you know, it, it's turned out pretty well. And so you've got on one side, this very, as it's underground, it's very controlled environment. And then you've got the new barrel houses that are out by the cacti and the red dirt. So right. what is that like? So, I mean, these are, um, you know, more traditional buildings. There is uh, ventilation built in them. 
And, you know, this is where, you know, we're, we're able to kind of stack barrels. Um, the temperature variation um, is, is slightly more certainly in the summer uh, just because it's out, you know, it's out and unexposed. Um, and so, you know, those, um, you know, those may have a, a slightly different profile, but we're monitoring it. I mean, we're, we're, you know, not, hadn't even pulled those yet. Um, you know, there's, you know, there, there's a, uh, you know, what, what's really kind of the family recipe uh, that, that we've been laying down out there that, um, you know, we, we haven't even given a name yet. So we still have, we still have another one uh, uh, that's coming in, in short term, but we'll keep you posted on that. I mean, for those barrel houses, obviously, as you said, there's going to be a higher diurnal shift. Uh, do you have to uh, like pump in more humidity there too, just to keep things from drying out? It's, it's, it's actually re relatively humid. Um, the we we do have a a well there um and a you know a system that we're keeping the grounds watered um and, and just to kind of keep it moist around the you know the barrel houses just so there's not a you know a fire risk essentially and so um the, the relative humidity inside there um rarely goes below excuse me 40 percent um and, and we do have a ventilation system that that blows off heat um uh, we didn't want it 140 degrees in there. And so um, we don't let it get, um, you know, generally above about a hundred degrees um, in the summer. And even when it's 110 out. Right, so, you got so that diurnal bumps in between um, in the wintertime between about 80 and hundred degrees. And in the, in the summertime, um, you know, it's between, I'm sorry, summertime is between 80 and hundred, uh, you know, wintertime, uh, you know, it may be between this time of year, between like 50 and 70. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a little wider spread, but the same kind of diurnal spread. It's, a good, like it's, it's not too far from downtown San Antonio. It's like 20 miles south. And, um, you know, that temperature gradient, you know, on a daily basis might, you know, it might be two to two to four degrees. It's not it's not huge. Um, you know, downtown is also a little warmer because there's just a lot of concrete. And so um there's not, not not as a big a, a variation as as you would think no certainly i i was uh i never thought about humidity even going down to kentucky in the summer which was kind of rough um <laughs> i never thought of humidity with yeah. houses until yeah until the, the last day of that trip to kentucky and then talking to um to colin over at santa fe spirits and then <clears throat> Um, you know, Mark over at Whiskey Del Bach, or they've got, you know, mm -hmm. Santa Fe Spirits has basically like zero percent humidity, so they have to yeah. spray the virals. Yeah, I mean, our, our relative humidity, you know, it, it's generally between sixty and eighty percent. San Antonio is pretty humid. Yeah. So, to bring in the kind of process of the whiskey itself, so you're working with local grains, uh, you know, Texas grown corn, a broodseed rye which in itself there, we won't have time to go into that one, but Abruzzi should be familiar listeners of the podcast uh, and malted barley as well. So correct. right now, I believe you got the recipe of the 72% corn, 18 rye and 10% malted barley. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that's from, you know, from reconstruction of history, that's kind of what you found as, as grandpa's recipe in a way. No, that's actually that's that's one of the kind of traditional recipes. The the grandpa's recipe is the one we hadn't released yet, ah, so okay. we're still aging that. Yeah, yeah. So um, that that ha has a name in my mind, and uh, I, I promise you, we'll talk about it soon. But we're uh, um, you know we're 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 waiting till it gets a little older, and and you know you know want to you know just want to kind of hold something back a little bit so sure sure so i'm, I'm guessing that uh we won't be able to answer that question about what's that mash bill like quite yet we'll save that for for when that comes out it, 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 it's there, there's a little there's a little wheat in it that that's you know i'll give a little teaser <laughs> fair enough fair enough so uh with so you know this being more of a traditional recipe then um how'd you settle on this one first before going before starting to distill the kind of family heritage recipe. 
Um, I mean, we, we had kind of done both side by side, but, um, you know, the, the family heritage recipe, um, you know, I just kind of, I kind of wanted to hold back. I mean, that's, that's the one that, you know, is going to be kind of our platinum level, you know, I think, and, and it's been, you know, it's been aging well. And so, um, it, it has a little, you know, it has a unique character. Um, this, I mean, we just wanted to do a, just a solid bourbon and, um, you know, you know, tried to try to keep it pretty classic. And, um, the, you know, from, from, you know, from the outset, you know, we, we just wanted to, you know, I worked with our distiller, you know, at the time and we did some taste testing and, um, you know, as it's coming out of the still, you know, this, this mash bill, just, it just seemed to be solid and it worked with our still and it worked with our supplier. And, you know, sometimes you, you know, you just do what God gives you. And this is, this was, you know, a, you know, we, we wanted to, you know, have a solid, um, you know, the, when we start really putting out to the masses, um, you know, kind of a building block. And so, um, you know, we're, we're proud of this one. We think it's turned out well, you know, we're continuing to age it. Um, and, you know, we will probably do, uh, you know, a, a more aged version of this as well. I mean, we're watching these barrels age and, uh, you know, we don't, you know, again, this is, we're a small family business here. I mean, you know, we, we, this is, I had kind of a 10 year plan going in, but, you know, some of the, some of this is my kid's problem. You know, we're, they're, they're going to figure out what to do with some of this, you know, good old, old bourbon too. So not a bad, not a bad problem to pass on for sure. So was the, I guess the other question with the, with the grains was um, when you were first talking about starting the distillery, was the idea of keeping the grain local and immediately part of that plan? It, it was um, the, you know, there, there's some things, you know, that are just not good in Texas, like the, the Oak. Um, and so like in our gin recipe, um, we tried to use some local juniper uh, and, and it's kind of like the oak, it tastes like turpentine. Um, and so, you know, it just, it just wasn't good. And so, you know, we, we went back to using, you know, traditional, um, you know, juniper, you know, e- either from the Northeast or, uh, you know, even from North, Northern Europe, uh, the whiskey, um, and, and the grains in Texas, you know, were, you know, I, I knew going into it that, you know, we could source these, um, you know, our, our partner, uh, actually in the panhandle of all things, uh, the name is the Maverick Malt House. Uh, no, no relation whatsoever, but, um, you know, we've, we've been working with them from the very beginning and, uh, the Texas panhandle is really in, on the latitude of, you know, Kansas and, you know, even touches Nebraska. And so, you know, a, a, there's a stripe of it there, um, where, you know, there, there's a real breadbasket and, you know, grain prices have certainly, elevated in the last couple of years but i mean we, we've had a pretty good steady source we've had a little bit of a drought in south texas and so we were you know a little worried about the corn um you know being able to get it you know and and i want to say in mass but i mean we we you know use you know tons and tons and tons of it uh in, in a year uh and some of the you know local farms have been struggling you know to produce it and and we're a small buyer but um, so far we haven't had any issue and you know, a lot of the farmers, you build a relationship like everything else. And they're like, you know what, we, you know, you, you, you can go first. You can be first in the list because I want my corn to be whiskey. And so there's usually a bottle of whiskey in it for them too, though. It, it helps. Always helps. I did a, I did a uh, side note. I did a private pick of a Jack Daniels pick a uh, year and a half ago or so. And um, oh, I got to keep the barrel and I've kept many of the bottles that came from the bot. And whenever I have a gift to give, I, you know, I would like to keep most of them for myself because I love it, but um, yeah, you know, it's a good little thing. It was like, oh, I forgot to get something. Okay. Go in the, literally go into the barrel and pick out a bottle. Wow. That's neat. So that's neat. It's yeah. no, it's good. It works. All right. So, but, but we have, a, we have a solid supply of corn, of wheat, of, um, you know, barley and, and rye, you know, that, that are in Texas. Um, there's, there's a good sugar source for a rum. Um, the, most of the, even botanicals in our gin are, are local or we, we gather from, uh, like grapefruit from the Texas Valley. And, um, you know, a lot of the botanicals we can easily grow around here. 
Um, but the, the grains we've, we've had a pretty solid, um, you know, supply of. And what, what, uh, kind of convinced you to go in the direction of creating a rye? Um, it just, it just seemed like, you know, something we needed to do <laughs> if you're in the distillery. Um, you know, a lot of this is, let's see if we can do it. And, you know, the, the things on the shelves aren't, you know, aren't necessarily the first, you know, iteration of, of what we put out there, but, um, you know, the, the grains are good here. Um, you know, one thing, and this is really the, the thread of a lot of these Texas distilleries is, um, you know, kind of like Kentucky, we have really good water. And so, um, the, the, we sit on an aquifer that is a, you know, heavily limed, you know, kind of aquifer and it's great for brewing. It's great for, um, distilling. Um, we, you know, we had a, designed a very complex water system within our distillery, um, basically removing the fluoride from, from the city water. Um, but then other than that, we have in San Antonio, really some of the best water, you know, in, in the United States and it's relatively, you know, inexpensive. Um, and, and, you know, we've, you know, that, that's kind of the common thread and that's really how San Antonio got founded uh, you know, all, all cities way back when were founded on rivers or water sources. And, um, we had some springs around here, not, not far from our distillery that, you know, we're producing like 15,000 gallons, a, you know, a day, um, as a water source. And so, um, or there, you know, there's kind of a, a story where, uh, our, my, my great uncle actually in the bank building where we, um, have the distillery, um, got together, with a guy he knew from St. Louis because he lived there. His name was Adolphus Bush, and they formed a the first dis, uh, brewery in San Antonio called the Lone Star Brewery, and uh, in, in basically where our building was. And so, um, the Lone Star Brewery originally sat, you know, about a mile up the San Antonio River from where we are right now. Um, and you know, that's that's been kind of the common thread of. Um, you know, distilleries and breweries around San Antonio, Austin, Dripping Springs, um, is we have we have good water. I mean, it, it's true. It, Kentucky and, and Tennessee both pride themselves on this idea of the limestone water. It's so great. It can only be made there because of the limestone shelf. And then you realize limestone is pretty much, it's not everywhere, but it's, it's in a lot of places. <laughs> it's, it's you big ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got one. We sit on one here in New York there's a bigger one up north there's one yeah. you know around the great lakes yeah. like it there's there's limestone everywhere so and even when there isn't frankly we've got the technology nowadays to just deionize and reverse osmosis the iron mm -hmm. out so it, it's not I, don't know, I i i like the story aspect of it but i think it's it's mm -hmm. had its day in terms of practicality <laughs> yeah I mean, and it, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, when we, when we proof it down, we take everything out anyway. And so, uh, but our, our distillery has, and I think we have seven types of water, I call them, because um, we have city water, obviously, which we use in toilets and things like that and kitchen. We have a hot and cold um, uh, city water that we have the fluoride removed and we really don't have um, high iron I mean, our, our tap water is as good as really anywhere in the country. Um, and then um, we, we have some, you know, reverse osmosis water uh, that we use and, and make there. And then um, we also have, uh, you know, kind of a soft water system that we use for, you know, some of our machinery and that sort of thing. And so we've got a lot of water lines, uh, but, you know, in, in the design of the distillery, you know, it's necessary and it's, it's given us some flexibility as well. And, uh, to go into just in the time we have left some of the kind of nitty gritty of it. Uh, so kind of who helped you design the distillery and where'd you get the stills? So I went up uh, to uh, Koval and uh, Kode, uh Dr. Berkner and, and kind of taken his course and, uh, you know, kind of drank some of their Kool-Aid. And so, um, we hired, um, Kode, uh, Kote, um, and who, who made our still and, um, all our mash system. And, um, we had everything autom automated, you know, traditional copper still, but, you know, we can run it with a cell phone and 
monitor it. And a part of us being in downtown San Antonio um, and the education of the, you know, kind of fire and safety officials was, you know, we've had our, our still and in, in our, um, you know, kind of control box is literally wired to the fire station. And so, you know, they can see what our still is doing and the temperature if they ever want to. We've never had an issue and we, you know, we knew we probably wouldn't, but, you know, it's kind of educated them. Um, another distillery popped up um, right across the alley from us, Devil's River, uh, you know, thought thought we had a good spot, I think. And so uh, they, they put a distillery down there and, you know, we, we welcome more because we're really, really hoping, you know, the downtown kind of turns into, you know, a, a craft distillery or craft brewery type you know, a destination, um, uh, tasting notes and smells. We try to, you know, infuse into the bourbon, you know, hopefully from some of the history and, uh, just the aura of it. Couldn't say it better. Right, well, Dr. Maverick, can thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Whiskering podcast to talk about Maverick stilling Maverick whiskey. We've certainly got some more to look forward to. Uh, over the next few years between the wheat, the triticale, the family heritage, whatever that name may be. <laughs> uh, and, and the triticale is available. Um, I mean, it's, I, I have to tell one more story. Yeah. So the triticale came from, uh, it was an accident basically. And so we'd ordered a bunch of rye and we're doing a rye um, uh, fermentation and it, it kept bubbling over. And I mean, I went a month of, of weekends just cleaning up a mess on the distillery floor and we couldn't figure out what was going on um, until and, and our, myself and our distiller I actually took the grain to my um, ophthalmology microscope and looked at it and it was like this is not rye you know it, it, it has it had a different look I didn't know what it was and so we called the malt house Maverick malt house and they said we're very sorry um, we mislabeled our rye and sent you something called triticale and I had no idea what that was you know I looked it up and it's this kind of hybrid grain of um that was developed you know centuries ago of, of rye and wheat but it's not exactly like blending rye and wheat like you might might do and so um we we had several fermentations of this and and um I told her to distill her all right well let's distill it and put it in a barrel and see what happens and so um, we pulled it out last summer, I guess, 18 months ago. And it was like, you know what, this is, you know, it's unique. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it tastes kind of like a classic whiskey, but we couldn't really put our, our you know, our thumb on it. And it, it kind of has a unique flavor all its own. I, and kind of researched and somebody had done, there've been a couple of triticales done, you know, along the way from various distilleries, but, um, you know, we, we're putting it in, in a few of the competitions this year and kind of see how it does. So t total accident, total happenstance, but, um, you know, put it in a barrel for a few years and it's always better. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. I mean, I, I look forward to, to hopefully getting the chance to try it because as I said, a couple of distillers have done either a full triticale or partial triticale whiskey. And to be honest, at least for my profile, uh, no one's been quite successful at it yet. Like I haven't found exactly yeah. the right thing, but who knows, maybe I'll, I'll try yours and it'll be the one that's like, all right, that's the one. But we'll no, we'll 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 get you some. We'll make it happen. Awesome, awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much. I really appreciate taking the time uh, talking about. You know, I love history. I'm kind of an addict of history right now, and a recovering medievalist. So, anytime you get to all right, take back into the records. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, hang on with me for a sec after we finish recording, just to close out a few things, but. In the meantime, uh, of course, as usual, when this episode comes out, there will be uh, reviews for anything that gets taste, uh, tasting notes, links to social media, to the Maverick Stilling website, where you can um, order for, uh, I think, 41 states, something like that. High 30s, low 40s. Correct. 41 states. Correct. So it is available. Uh, and as I said, it's definitely, it's one of those whiskeys that I just, it's different and it's worth a try. And I quite liked it. Uh, I've had the private reserve. Uh, and yeah, there'll be links to everything. Make sure to follow on, uh, you know, Whiskey Ring at Twitter, Whiskey My Wedding Ring, and Whiskey Ring Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. Join the Whiskey Ringers Facebook group. And uh, if you can, leave five star rating review, support on Patreon. And I will see you next week. All right. 
Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedding That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club. So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.